The following recording is from Life Church. If you'd like more information about Life Church in Woodstock, Ontario, visit lifeinyou.com. I don't know if the ushers had a chance to do this, uh, hand out Bibles. If for some reason you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, you can borrow it for the entire service. You're going to need it, you're going to want it. Make sure that I'm not lying to you. The quickest way to know if a preacher is lying to you is that if what he's saying doesn't line up or isn't found in the Word of God, then, then they're blowing smoke. And the thing about smoke is it might look solid, but you try to grab it and your hand just goes right through it. So you want to make sure I'm not blowing smoke at you. But before we begin today, I'd like to take just a few seconds, if you would. I want you to take a few seconds just to think about the concerns of your heart. So I'm just going to ask you just a moment where you just allow yourself to be silent. And I'll think, what's he trying to get me to do? What's up his sleeve? Or... I'm looking forward to lunch, or when's this going to be over? Whatever thoughts are running through your head, that you just put them at silent and think about the week, the month that was, and just stop and say, okay, what were the things that weighed heavy on my mind, the concerns that I have, something that would reoccur in my thoughts? I'm just going to let you sit for a moment in silence, which is never very easy, and just think about the month and the week that was. Now, you can wipe away the cold sweat that probably has formed upon your brow because you're thinking, he's going to make me say, what's the concerns of my heart? And I'm going to pick you out and do that. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. I will not question you. I will not have you stand up and say, these these are the things that concern me over the last week, month, year. I'm not going to do that at all. But what I am going to do is I'm going to instead tell you what your concerns were. I'm going to kind of go through and say... Here's what thoughts and questions that you had over this week. And and you're going to find yourself in some of these questions. You can, at the end of the the service, if you want, you can say, oh, you were wrong. But I don't think you will. The concerns of your heart, maybe it was this, I'm going through a particular difficulty right now. What should I do? I hate this habit and I need to break it. Is that even possible? When things go wrong at home or work or school, I'm the one who seems to get blamed my co-workers they want to head out after work and they want to go to places and do things that are kind of borderline at best should i keep attending my spouse has little interest in my faith what should i do i don't know where i fit in even even at church i don't know where where should i start when i look around watch the news read the paper I constantly see evil and suffering. What's the right perspective? I'm fearful of death. I don't think much of myself. I feel so alone. Why am I such a hypocrite? Can I even change? Did I get you in one of those? Over this last week, month, have these been thoughts? Of course, the details are going to be different. They're going to be just as individual as the individuals that are sitting in this room. The reason why I got these isn't because I looked into your diary or journal, whatever you want to call it, the same thing. Guys call them journals, women call them diaries. I don't know why, but that's just the way it is in my household. Zane has a diary, Macaulay has a journal. And I didn't read yours. But I'm guessing that I got you there because the reason being is because these are the questions that that people like me receive more than any other questions. 
Like I said, the details will change. The specifics will be nuanced in a certain way. But basically, those are the list of questions that I will receive, pastor will receive, Colin will receive on a very regular basis. And here's the thing is that every single one of those questions is dealt with in a single letter. A letter that was sent to a group of recipients which would, in the area of the world which would now be called Turkey. If you've been watching the news, you know Turkey is in the news quite often. I don't know if you've been keeping up to date, but they had a coup. Part of the reason behind that coup is actually dealt with in this letter. It is probably the most practical letter in the whole entire Bible. And the contents of it are just as relevant to today, almost 2,000 plus years later after it was written, as it was in that day. And so, if you'll join me, I want you to go to First Peter. And for those of you who have uh, the church Bibles, you grabbed one of those, it's page 490, you can take a look there, that'll get you there quicker. I don't know, if those of you who don't have a church Bible, you're on your own. If you don't have tabs, that means you're searching. But we're going to go to First Peter. And we're going to just read the first chapter. There's five chapters in Peter. We're not going to read all five. But I'm going to read the first one. I'm not going to answer all those questions I posed. But I'm wanting you to realize if one of those questions are burning in your heart, you can find the answer to it in First Peter. Here's the problem. is We live in a society where we want to get to the point. Get to the point. If you can't say it in 140 characters or less, I'm, it's of no value to me. But let me just say it to you this way. Most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, have thoughts that take more than 140 characters to explain. And we deal with issues that take more than 140 characters to dissect and find the cure for. And so, if those questions were yours, go to First Peter and you will find the answer but it'll be more than 140 characters. So today, we're going to read more than 140 characters, but it's God's word. So it is precious and worthy of more than 140 characters. We have a God who has spoken, and thank God he did it in more than 140 characters. For those of you who are like, why is he saying 140 characters? That's about the length of a tweet. That's about the length of a text message. For those of you who might not have understood what I was getting at. But starting... In verse 1 of First Peter. I, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. In Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia, in Asia, in Bethania. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the testing of gen, gen, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through the testing of fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy in an that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who who through him are believers in Christ, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. For the grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. We may stop there. So that is 1 Peter 1. Sometimes I think we're not used to reading such a great amount of scripture in one setting. I'm hoping that it captured your imagination as it was being read, that you followed along. But I want you to notice what Peter wrote. And I'm going to apologize in advance. For some odd reason, I always think Peter, say Paul. Think Paul, say Peter. So if for some reason today I say Paul, recognize I mean Peter. And forgive me. I don't want to confuse you or throw you off theologically. But I mean Peter. So all throughout the day, I'm speaking of the author of this note. The earthly author. Because we also know this, that all scripture was breathed out by God. And so it has a second author more important than the earthly author. And that is the Father above. But the earthly author, the man whom which God used, is Peter. But I want you to notice, whom does Peter address the letter to? To the elect exiles? 
Doesn't that sound both odd and beautiful? Elect exiles. In those two words, Peter is defining and contrasting our relationship with both God and the world. Why why it's such an odd statement, you know, elect exiles. It's an oxymoron. If you're like, what's an oxymoron? Well, an oxymoron is just a figure of speech where seemingly contradictory words are put together. You'll know it best as, you know, in bittersweet, that's an oxymoron. Jumbo shrimp. Devout atheist. Unbiased opinion. Those are all oxymorons. And so is this. Two words, elect and exiles put together. And some would argue that that's even the theme of this whole entire book. If you look at Judges, one of the themes of that whole entire book is wrapped up in the statement, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And theologians will look at Judges and say, that is the theme. And there are people who will look at the, the book of Peter and say, the theme is this, that we are elect exiles. And so it's important. What does that mean? When it talks about elect, it's just simply meaning a chosen people. We are a people set apart from God. You look throughout the Bible and you'll see that God always has for himself. What? A people. In the Old Testament, it singles out a a nation of individuals, not because they were the smartest, not because they were the biggest, not because they had the wealth. They were chosen by God because he just simply chose them. And we know it was the nation of Israel. And they were called his elect and chosen people. And Peter is using the same words to describe us, those who would be children of God. That we are elect and a chosen by him. You have to understand that in themselves, in ourselves, believers are just ordinary people. But the gracious choice of God makes us what we are. The one whom God favors and loves. It's not about me and not about you. But God chose us. You and I are just plain Jane hum, humdrum. And if there's anyone by the name of Jane in here, I don't mean to say you're plain. It's an expression. But we are, apart from God, we're just ordinary people. And what did the verses say that we saw? It said that we're just like the grass and the flowers. Ordinary people fade away and wither. But there's something extraordinary in being chosen by God. And so it speaks of elect, and this is exiles. And what is that? Exiles are just temporary residents, aliens, refugees. Right now, in Europe and around the world, and we just don't see this because we don't hear it on the news, there's a flood of refugees. A flood of people who are, who are moving from what they would call home. This is where we were born. This is, this is where I hang my hat. And they're moving elsewhere because of where they hung their hat is no longer safe for them. Canada's receiving them. Germany, England, France. A mass of people are moving throughout this world who are exiles, temporary residents, and refugees. This is not their home. And Peter's saying that to us. That we are exiles, Temporary residents, refugees, where? In this world, 
In this world, you are a refugee. You know, those, those two words put together, elect exile, is so contrasting that, that it's, it can also be said this way, royal refugees. You are elect exiles, royal refugees. And it doesn't make sense. One royalty and the other a refugee. How can that be? Here's the thing. Our values are heaven's values. Our goals are heaven's goals. Our ways are heaven's ways. But our values and our values and goals and ways are in conflict with the values, goals, and ways of our society, of our culture. That is what makes us refugees. Christians have standards and values different from those in the world. And this gives us both opportunity for witness and for warfare. Now, please don't take that last word and think that we're out and militant. I'm just saying that the world will come a-knocking at our door because they disagree with us. But it gives us opportunity for witness as well as warfare. Emily has met some refugees who've landed in Canada. They're living in Woodstock. They do not speak the language, do not understand a lick of English. They do not recognize the culture. Their culture is different. Their language is just different. Their, their, their values, their, everything is different and they're placed in our culture. How do you think it makes them feel? Maybe. It doesn't. In the same way, as believers, being elect exiles, being royal refugees. We live in a society that doesn't speak the same way we do, doesn't use the same language, doesn't have the same customs, cultures, or values. And there's the potential for letting that beat us down. Peter wrote this letter, just so you know, to provide comfort and strengthen the Christian faith of a people who lived in a culture very similar to our own. What I mean by that is their beliefs were being marginalized, they were being persecuted, and it was a struggle. And Paul wrote this letter to those people, to those individuals. And so, if you today are an elect exile, a royal refugee, the question you have to ask yourself, and it's answered within this text, is how are we to live as elect exiles in a culture, in a nation, in a system that doesn't line up with what we believe, that, that there's going to be that conflict, that there'll be opportunity for witness and an opportunity for warfare. What does that look like? Well, Verse 3, let me read. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the testing 
tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold than, that perishes through the testing of fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. I am going to mention Paul, and I mean Paul. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.12, it tells us that the believer, the unbeliever, excuse me, is without hope in this world. A person who hasn't dealt with this one reality that there is a God and I've fallen short and I need a Savior, hasn't dealt with that, hasn't come to the realization that they need to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Paul says they're without hope in this world. But Peter says, but the believer has a living hope. Why? Because the believer has a living Savior. Christ is our hope, and we look for his soon coming return. You have to understand, we put our hopes and trust in lots of things, but we never stop to think about the end game. Where does this end up? You put your trust in your job. What happens when you can no longer do your job? You put your trust in a relationship. What happens when that relationship ends? You put your trust in your own abilities. What happens when your abilities fail you? Those who are young in this room, let me tell you, there will be a day you will wake up in bed hurting. And you'll be like, what did I do yesterday that caused me to hurt? And you want to know what? You'll find out it was, I hurt myself sleeping. That is the most odd injury you could ever had. You know, oh, I got this one from football. I got this one from baseball. I got this one from hunting. I got this one from sleeping wrong. You know, and that is what will happen. Your body will fail you, but God never will. So we put our hope in these things that will end. They will disappear. They will tarnish. They will be stolen. They will fail us. But the reason why Christians have a living hope is because we have a living Savior. We do not work for this hope. It is part of our spiritual birthright. We are born again into a living hope. And this Hope is not only living, it's a lasting one. This is the verses that we just read. It is reserved in heaven where it cannot decay, be defiled, lost, lose its beauty or delight. And what do we do? We hold to this hope in the face of persecution, tests, trials, the forward movement of time, the monotony of life. When people step up and say things, slander our names, all of these things, in the face of that, we hold to this hope. An unbeliever who is honest with himself must be in a panicked state because they'll sit there and say, I look at the world and I see no hope. I have no hope. And so what do we do? We use placebos. Placebos are like sugar pills. They have no medical medical value whatsoever to cure anything. But we take them and we feel good for a moment. And so we find things to act as a placebo. Lose ourselves in hobbies and relationships. You know what? You can use church as a placebo too. I go to church. I'm cool. I'm good. 
you know what? If I had a garage and hung out in there, it wouldn't make me a car. Even if I walked around going, vroom, vroom, vroom. It doesn't really matter. Every one of us as a child, or I shouldn't say every one of them, most of us who were boys as a child probably ran around going, vroom, 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 pretending we were in a car. Although it was fun, and although it made our parents go, ah, it didn't get us around any faster. And it didn't impress the little girls either. Just letting you know. I'm just letting you know. We hold to this hope in the face of everything. And look at verse 6. It says, And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through its testing by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me stop there. What Peter is saying, he's saying, hey, you're being persecuted. You're going, you're, you're elect exiles, royal refugees, and you're putting up with stuff, a culture that is counter to what you know is right. You're being grieved. You're being persecuted. You're going through trials. And what does he say about this? They grieved you. But they were what? Necessary. That's the most bizarre statement in the world to me. Because if I can avoid pain, if I can avoid conflict, I try to do that. That's why I don't like needles. If people say, why don't you have a tattoo? The real reason is, well, there's two reasons. One is, I hate needles, and so I avoid them. The second reason is, those things that you think are cool when you're young, scare your grandchildren later in life. Like, why does it say on your arm and a weird-looking heart? Well, it said mom, and just kind of let me get that up there. There you go. Does that look right? You know, that's why. But we avoid these things. And then in the Bible, Peter says they're necessary. And what does he say it's necessary for? To test our faith. Can I tell you something? Faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. If you avoid your faith being tested, you can't trust your faith. James, he talks about, he talks about a living faith. And with living faith, there are works involved. And here's the thing is, sometimes those works are our words. Sometimes those works are our deeds. Sometimes those works are the scars and scratches that we've lived through that we can say, and God was faithful through it all. Just letting you know that if you avoid those scars and you avoid those scratches and you avoid getting your hands dirty and your fingernails torn up, then you have yourself a faith that cannot be tested and therefore a faith that shouldn't be trusted. So how should we live as being elect exiles, uh, royal refugees, we live in hope. We live in hope. But how else should we live? How else should we live? Because we just don't live in hope. There's more ways to live than just that one way. I want to point out verse 17. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, And if you call on him as father, Just stop there. If you call on him 
as father. I don't know what kind of relationship you have with your parents. I honestly do not know. Some of us had great relationships. Some had poor relationships. Some of us might not even know who our fathers are or our mothers are. I don't know what your situation is, but here's one undeniable truth. You will have family resemblance. You will have family traits. There are things that you probably said, oh, I'll never say that. My mom or dad used to say that. And then you catch yourself saying that now. I'm like, whoa, where did I get that from? You, that's a family trait. You caught that from mom. You caught that from dad. You can probably, I could probably, if you are new here, I could probably say there's, my mom and dad are here, are sitting in this congregation. And you could probably say, that's his dad right there. Why? Because of family resemblance. I have three kids here. Two of them are boys. And the, all the kids could come rushing up. And I bet you, you could say, that's his son. And that's his son. And, and then you'd look to my daughter and say, thank God she doesn't look like him. <laughs> but there's a family resemblance. And so, if you call him as father... Let me just say this. There's going to be a family resemblance. If you call on him as father, you should live in a way that reflects your father's character and nature. And if you look back in verse 13, there's a good hint as to what that looks like. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient Children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we should live as elect exiles, as royal refugees in this earth. We should live in holiness. And the question you're going to ask yourself, what does that mean? Because sometimes as Christians, we just throw words out there and go, yeah, but what does that mean? Yeah, live in holiness. What does that mean? Holiness means pure, godly, sinless. That, that word holy, theologians will tell you that's the most defining characteristic of God. The world will say, well, God is love. And that is true, but that's not his most defining characteristic. His most defining characteristic is he's holy. He is completely other. There's nobody like him. He is holy, holy, holy. And if you know anything about Jewish writing, when they repeat themselves, it means to the utmost and to the absolute. He is the epitome of holy, the definition of it. Nothing else can come close. And we're to live that way. Pure, godly, sinless. D.A. Carson once said this, because here's the issue. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience of scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. 
We slouch towards prayerlessness. We delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. That's the problem we face. But did you notice that? He said, apart from grace-driven effort. Apart from God. That is our natural state. And without grace-driven effort, that is our natural state. Whom in this room knows who Vince Lombardi is? Okay, a few of you. Let me just say this. Many of you might have heard the name, but have no clue who he is. Some of you in this room, the minute I said it, were like, oh, I know exactly. Let me tell you, here's, here's how most of you might know him, is that every February, the world, or at least North America, seems to stop outside of the fast food chains, because they're a-hopping. You know, pizzas and all these different things. And what happens is everyone gathers in front of a TV and they watch this game where grown men in spandex and pads smash the living daylights out of each other for our pleasure. And I enjoy it. I'm not, I'm not, making, I'm not making a commentary about why, you know, violence in football. I'm like, yes, that is what makes football fun. And they fight for a trophy called the Lombardi Trophy. And Vince Lombardi is probably arguably the greatest coach that ever I guess, ran the game. But every year, here's what you have to understand, is that every year, he'd start the season with a similar speech. What he would do is he'd start with these five simple words. He'd say, gentlemen, this is a football. A football. He would then go on to explain the role of that ball in the game. He'd say, these marks are called yard markers. And they will signify your progress. That line there is the end zone. And your job is to take this football and cross that line. You are the players. I am the coach. And he would begin to explain all the details of how to play the game of football. He would give this speech to grown men. Grown men who would probably played this game for the vast majority of their lives. Men who played on the greatest theater of competition, many of them even in the Super Bowl. So why in the world would he give such a seemingly elementary speech to men who obviously knew how to play the game? Gentlemen, this is a football. Yeah, we know. You have to understand, Lombardi had a relentless dedication to execution and fundamentals. So every year... This is how you hit. This is a football. Your job is to walk across that line there. You do this is how you block. This is all these things that men who are being paid to play should know. But he said execution and fundamentals are the most important thing. And so if you ask me, how can we live in holiness in a world that just refuses to line up with the word of God, then my answer to you would be the same way Lombardi would give it. Gentlemen, this is a Bible. It contains the word of God and is your playbook for all that is, all that's required in life and godliness. These are your eyes. You're to use them to read this daily. This is your mind. You're to meditate on what's in here day. And night, 
This is your heart. You're to store up everything that is written in here so that you might believe it and do it. This is your mouth. You're to say all that it tells you to say. These are your hands. You are to love your neighbor, to reach to the lost, to help out your brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because this tells you to. These are your feet. They're going to take you places so that your hands and your lips can do exactly what the Bible tells you to do. This is a life of holiness. Now the question you have to ask yourself is, is it even possible to live to the standard of holiness that Peter lays out in that letter? He says this, he says, you are to be holy. How? For I am holy. If the standard is God himself, can we even live to that standard? Can we live to that standard? Let me just answer that question briefly with this statement. No soldier ever puts on his uniform and says, my goal is not getting hit very much. No soldier would ever say that. Soldiers do get hit. But they go in there saying, my goal is not to get hit. Why, is it, why would it be our goal then to not sin very much? I'm just starting off by answering the question, can we live to what Peter said perfectly? The answer is no. But our goal shouldn't be well, I'm not going to try to sin very much. Our goal should be not to sin at all. If I'm going to quote Lombardi again, he says, perfection is not attainable. But if you chase perfection, you can catch excellence. And that is true for holiness. We have an inheritance, an imperishable one that's a holy one, a heavenly one. Do you understand that inheritances aren't earned? They're received. Your pursuit of holiness, living as elect exiles in this world, doesn't earn you that inheritance. It doesn't. But you're going to pursue it because of the family resemblance. I'm going to be holy because he is holy. And although I'm pursuing perfection, I'm going to catch excellence. And God is still pleased with that. Sometimes... Here's the truth. The Bible shows us that we can't live perfectly. That Christ had to come and live a perfect life of obedience. And sometimes we focus that on so much that we go, okay, then why should I bother? Let me explain to you why you need to bother. It's because the other side of the thing is God is pleased with our obedience. Although our obedience and our holiness do not earn us anything... God is well pleased with it. Just like when my children do something like clean the room. Did they clean it to the standard of what mom or dad could have done it? Probably not. But we're well pleased in the effort. When they spill milk and they, and they take a dirty rag and wipe it around and it's made more mess. They tried and therefore were pleased. Did it? it well, you know what? You son are going to get a bigger inheritance than the other two. No. They're loved equally. They're loved individually. And they're loved regardless if they cleaned up the milk or made their beds. But we're well pleased in the process. And so I'm just sharing with you today that as 
elect exiles in this world were to live in hope and to live in holiness. And so for you, and that is if you call on him as father. Now today, if there's people in this room that you don't call on him as father, I'm exceedingly glad you're here. Because here's the truth. And up until the point in time he becomes your father, you have no hope. But you've heard the gospel. You've heard what Peter has said. That all of these things which angels long to look into has been stored up and placed in the word of God so that you might hear it and you might believe it and you might place your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross. And then you too will have a living hope. Why? Because you will have a living Savior and you will call upon Him as Father, the one who justly judges the works of all men. He will be your Father. And so I'm exceedingly excited you're here. And and maybe you're like, well, I call him father, but there's no family resemblance. Then my response to you is maybe he's not your father. Stop and ask yourself. And And if you're like, I don't see the family resemblance. My sin doesn't grieve me and I do not pursue holiness then my question to you is, is he your father because there's no family resemblance? And here's the wonderful thing you need to know. Is God takes great pleasure in taking the lost of this world and turning them into, what do you think he turns them into? Elect exiles. Royal refugees who have a hope laid up for them for all eternity. So if you're sitting today saying, ha, you know, I'm just kicking the tires of Christianity. You guys believe some weird stuff. There's hope for you. And may you live in that hope someday. And may you live a life of holiness and call him Father. And if that is what you want today, come and speak to me afterwards. Or pastor. Or Colin. And we'll lead you in that. But right now, I want to close in prayer. I want to encourage you all to understand and embrace the reality that you are elect exiles living in a world that's not your own. That the royal refugees represented in this room are called to live a life of hope and of holiness of which you're equipped to pursue because you have the Holy Spirit within you and that your acts of obedience are well-pleasing in the sight of the Lord, not earning you His favor, but they are pleasing to a Father who loves His children. And those of you who do not call Him as Father, there is hope for you be found within the pages of scripture and within the reality that Jesus paid the price for your sins. Receive that free gift today. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you in your word that what you do is you've revealed to us that this world is not our own, 
that we've been bought with a price and we are yours. We are a royal priesthood. A people that you've separated unto yourselves. We are elect exiles in this world. And we might face tests, troubles, and trials. But here's the thing. The proving of our faith is a wonderful thing. And a proven faith is one that we can rely on. And Father God, backed by your Holy Spirit, we will live a life of holiness. Pursue to do what is right. Pursue to live godly. Pursue to live a set-apart life in a world that wouldn't embrace us, in a world that runs contrary to what you have written in your word, we can be your representatives. This is a Bible. These are my eyes. I will read it daily. This is my mind. I will meditate on everything that you have said. This is my heart. We will store up your word forever. And we will obey it. These are our hands. We will love our neighbors as ourselves. And these are our feet. And they will take us wherever you desire us to go. So that our hands and our lips might do the work you created them to do. Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you've made us your own. And that we can live a life free from sin. And that we can enjoy you forevermore. It's the greatest gift we could ever have. The greatest thing we could ever experience. And the greatest thing we can share with those who do not know the truth. We thank you for this name. Precious Son Jesus, we all pray and say, Amen. Have an awesome day, guys.